Thank you, Father, that all the scripture is God-breathed, useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Open our hearts to receive your word, that we may know you better and be thoroughly equipped for every good work through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. 2 Peter 3, 1-13 Dear friends, this is now my second you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Saviour through your apostles. Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. <coughs> Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire, and the elements will melt into the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Now please flick over to Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things had passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderous, the sexually immoral, all those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars... They will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Uh, let me uh, lead us briefly in prayer. Come to big picture God's word tonight. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that you speak to us in the Holy Scriptures for our good. We pray that tonight as we consider what your word has to say about the time we live in and the time we are soon to live in, uh, that you would open our hearts and eyes by the power of your spirit at work within us to the truth and enable us to become more like our Lord and Saviour Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Oh, good. I've got the power. Brothers and sisters, a problem that can often plague Christians, especially, I might say, in the first world like ours, is a problem of what I call the fluffy future fail. 
goes like this, we know that in the future, Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead, and then we'll go to heaven where everything will be perfect. But the details of that great future can be kind of scatty a lot of the time. So it just kind of stays in that fluffy out there category, pie in the sky when you die kind of vibe. And because that great future is relegated to the fuzzy, fluffy, not too well defined box, it doesn't affect our day-to-day thinking and decisions very much, if at all. For many Christians, life has a predictable shape. Of course, there's church and growth group and the ongoing struggle with prayer and Bible reading. And apart from that, it's, well, you go to school or uni or TAFE and you work and you try to own a house and you put your kids through school and you make sure you have a decent retirement. And, oh, because you're a Christian, when you die, you'll go to heaven. Your ultimate destination is certainly a happy ending, but it's one that remains largely undefined or not very much thought of. And because it's largely undefined, it has very little actual bearing on your life in the here and now, other than it operates like a really, really good insurance policy. The fix to the fluffy future fail is to consider what the Bible teaches us about eschatology. There's a big word for the week to use in a sentence. Eschatology. Eschatology. Oh. I'm missing a lot of slides at the beginning. It's all right, don't worry. Eschatology is the study of what the Bible calls the last days or the last things. Uh, many of you uh, might be familiar with the opening words in um, the, the, the letter to the Hebrews, uh, which starts off, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. You can see that Hebrews 1, 1 uh, and 1, 2. The adjective last that's used there is actually taken from the Greek word eschatos, from which we get eschatology. And we see in that same verse that the last days are actually already present. It's in these last days. The return of Jesus and the final judgment has obviously not happened yet. Uh, But the goal to which God is moving all history, his end point, if you like, has already begun. God's future has broken into our present. Eschatology is not only concerned with what will happen on the last day, but also with what's happening in these last days. And it's this overlap of the ages, or as I've called it on your outline, the beginning of the end... that we're now going to start to see, oh, there it is, that we're now going to start to see how the Bible de-fluffies the future and actually enables us to live in these last days in the light of the last day. The Old Testament prophets set up an expectation that God would one day have his people in a perfect kingdom, a kingdom ruled over by the son of David, the great Messiah, and that it would last into eternity. When Jesus preached the gospel, the first thing he said was, and I'm quoting from Mark 1.15, the time has come, the kingdom of God has come near, 
repent and believe the good news. But then as he was being crucified, the criminal on the cross, you might remember next to him, said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you'll be with me in paradise. And yet, after his resurrection from the dead, his disciples gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. The only way to hold all these parts of the Bible together is to assume, quite rightly, that God's eschatological kingdom has begun, but has not yet been consummated. It's possible, you see, to be a citizen of heaven and yet long for the day when God's will will be done on earth as it currently is in heaven. The age Christians live in is the beginning of the end, or as the Bible puts it, the last days. Now, for part of today's sermon, I've played to my weaknesses instead of my strengths and decided to give what, for me at least, is a fancy visual representation of the time in which the Bible places us. I'm going to see if I can make this work and if I've got the power. Here we go. From Genesis through to the four Gospels, we see the creation, the fall, the history of Israel, and then, of course, the birth, death, resurrection and ascension of Jesus, who is the full and final revelation from God. The resurrection and ascension of Jesus inaugurated the eschaton, that is the resurrection age, which continues into eternity. But as we heard, if we paid attention in that first Bible reading from 2 Peter chapter 3, things seem to continue just as they always have been prior to the resurrection of Jesus. Sorry, prior to the second coming of Jesus. As Christians, we are both raised with Christ already and yet we remain in this world as his witnesses. We rightly look forward to the time that our earthly and our heavenly existence is no longer separate but together. We're not told when that's going to happen, but we are told that it certainly will happen. It will happen, of course, when Jesus Christ returns in glory to judge the living and the dead. When he returns, and as far as I can work out, immediately when he returns and carries out the final judgment, then the heavenly reality, the domain in which God's perfect will is always done, will figuratively come down. In the immortal words of the 80s singer-songwriter Belinda Carlisle, who half of you haven't heard of, the scriptures do actually use the imagery of heaven becoming a place on earth. But in similar fashion, the Bible also suggests that the created order, along with the saved people of God, will figuratively again go up. So, to use the language of Revelation 21 that we had read out, God's dwelling place will now be among the people, heaven comes down. But to use the language, for example, of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, the Lord himself will descend and those who are still alive and left will be caught up together with Jesus to, to meet him in the air. What this means is that heaven is not so much a fluffy place of rainbows and unicorns, but it's actually kind of a shorthand for what the Bible calls 
the new heavens and the new earth, which you hear all over the Bible, the new heavens, the new earth. It is a physical reality where we have real flesh and bone bodies, real minds and do real activities. Of course, the saddest thing about knowing the truth that is in Christ is knowing that those who have not taken part in that first resurrection, that is, those who have not repented and put their faith in Jesus, will receive the justice they absolutely deserve on account of their own sinful will and volition and along with Satan and his angels, they will all suffer the eternal torment of hell. We'll look at heaven and hell a little bit later on, but for now, hopefully we can start to appreciate how the fact that we've already entered into God's future impacts in so many ways on the here and now. For starters, it's one of the big motivations to pursue holiness in our day-to-day lives. The Apostle Paul writes, and these are some of my favourite words that he wrote in Colossians chapter 3, Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And so, remember that downward arrow, when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And if you know the rest of that chapter, it's that one where you've got all this stuff that follows, a big long list of all the things that Christians are to kill or put off because they're sinful. And then there's all the godly things we're to embrace and put on because we live with lives hidden in Christ as we await his return. Living both in the last days and the resurrection age also provides the basis for having inner joy, inner peace, and inner contentment despite the very real and very painful trials and sufferings of this perishing world. For example, and I'm going to guess this is probably a favourite passage for many people, what Paul writes in Philippians chapter 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. Why? Well, the next words, the Lord is near. And do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And finally, on this point, living in both the last days and in also the resurrection age is actually a really great motivation for evangelism. We must tell of his salvation while we wait for the day when Jesus comes will be too late. Uh, a great quote I found from uh, the late systematic theologian named uh, Anthony Hokema puts it like this, and I'll read it out. Jesus had said, This gospel of the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come, Matthew 24. This preaching of the gospel, therefore, is both a distinctive mark of the age in which we now live and a sign pointing forward to Christ's second coming. The missionary preaching of the gospel is a sign which reminds us of Christ's victory in the past and which anticipates his glorious return. So, brothers and sisters, I declare to you that every effort you make toward holiness, every prayer, every time you 
Do something to nourish your spiritual life. Every effort you put into killing your sinful thoughts, words and deeds and every effort at telling others the gospel, do invite people to Easter. It is all actually you becoming more of the real you. The you that you'll be on that final day when there's no longer any conflict between the spirit and the flesh. When those last days and the resurrection age are kind of met up in you. And speaking of that day, point two on your outline, we're now going to look briefly at the final judgment itself, or as I've called it, the end of the beginning. On the last day, Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead. He will separate all people into two categories, we're told, the sheep and the goats, one on his right, one on his left, to those who have lived with him as Lord and Saviour. He will give us entry into the glorious kingdom that has been prepared for his people since the beginning of the world. To those, on the other hand, who have continued to live in smug, defiant rebellion against him, he will send into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. You can read all that in Matthew 25. The Bible has a lot to say about the final judgment. But two things in particular seem to get more airtime than, than most other things when it comes to judgment. They are firstly the rightness, the absolute goodness of justice in that final judgment. And secondly the suddenness or the unexpectedness of that final judgment. We'll start briefly by considering the rightness of what Jesus is soon to do. The word hallelujah, it's a joyful expression that means, will you tell me, what does hallelujah mean? Praise God, that's right. There's actually only four times in the New Testament where that word hallelujah occurs, only four. And they're all in one chapter of the Bible and that chapter is Revelation 19 and all of them are praising God for his decisive, final and eternal judgment upon all worldly power and all worldly people that lived in deliberate rebellion against Jesus and his church. To get a feel for it, we're just going to look at the, the first part of it, so we're going to get two hallelujahs. Revelation 19, beginning verse 1. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven, shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are His judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute, which is figuratively uh, worldly power and, and political systems that are opposed to God. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants and again they shouted, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. Notice that the torment is eternal forever and ever. One of the many immoral things about atheism is that it excludes the possibility of a final divine judgment for all people who have ever lived. Atheism means that for Hitler, there's no ultimate reckoning. He does unspeakable evil, like all the other big-name atheist dictators of the 20th century, and apparently all that then happens is he commits suicide and ceases to exist. What a horrendously dreadful universe to live in, if that really is the case. 
The atheist might well justify his or her position saying they just can't accept the possibility of God when the world is capable of such evil things like the Holocaust. But that is such a cowardly cop-out. Because by the same logic, frankly better logic, one could respond, I can't believe there is not a God, lest there is no ultimate justice for an unspeakably horrible evil that really did happen like the Holocaust. That the true and living God will deliver ultimate justice on the last day is one of the biggest reasons to shout with joy, hallelujah. Now I've noticed it's sort of rare for Christian songwriters to write songs that have hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever in them, but uh, I accept my own challenge. Now, the reality of that final judgment, that it is absolutely perfect, right, just and good, does not mean that we don't also, at least in the present, have tremendous sadness on account of the reality that there will be many who enter that eternal fire. One of our former archbishops, Peter Jensen, puts it really well when he writes, for those who are perishing, responsible for their own condemnation through their unresolved rebellion against God's rule, there is the pain of exclusion from the presence of God in hell forever, of the inconsolable loss of love that should be at the centre of human life and the sharpness of unrelieved conscience. There need be no doubt that this has been their own choice in not wanting to be ruled by God, but we can hardly think of it without pain and horror, to which I say, Amen. The other thing the Bible keeps telling us about the final judgment is the unexpectedness with which it will come. One of the most common illustrations that Jesus himself taught, and you could probably shout this one out, uh, about the final judgment is that it's going to come like a thief in the night, i.e. you don't know when, unexpected, sudden. The moment somebody tells you they've calculated the day or even the period of time, other than in the last days, that Jesus will return, is the moment you know that that someone has not believed the clear teaching of the Scriptures. No one knows the day or the hour. And our job is not to calculate the secret things of God as if we could anyway. Our job is to remain vigilant and ready. We're to stay sober and alert to not get too comfortable with the ways of this perishing world. Even though, as we saw in that reading from 2 Peter, we could get the impression that things just go on and on the way they always have, where to remember that, well, that's what people in the days of Noah thought until it was too late. The flood came, took them by surprise. I'm going to tell you guys, one of the simplest, but I reckon most effective ways that I remember learning about the suddenness of the last day uh, was by a preacher who illustrated it in such a way it gave a lasting impression. Uh, this preacher said, when Jesus returns, it's going to be so sudden, it's like, bang! Like that. And I never forgot it. And now I hope you'll never forget it too. Brothers and sisters, every time you gather with other believers under the Word of God, you're doing what our loving Heavenly Father says is a great way to remain ready for that last day. The bang might make you startled, but it won't make you surprised. 
because you'll have kept yourself ready. The person who sees no need of serious church commitment is the person for whom the last day could well, in the end, come as a dreadful shock. That brings us to our third and final point, what happens beyond the last day. In other words, I guess you could say, what is heaven and hell actually like? Well, given that heaven, I think, is really sort of shorthand for something like the new heavens and the new earth under God's perfect eternal rule, and that hell is kind of shorthand for eternal destruction, lake of fire, out of darkness, second death as a result of God's perfect justice on unbelievers. Perhaps a more biblically informed way about thinking of each of these eternal destinations is with something like renewal and torment. Relative to other things God has revealed, there is less about the details of heaven and hell in the Scriptures. At one level, that has to be the case, because we're dealing with realities beyond the scope of our experience in a fallen, time-bound existence, but there is certainly more than enough to deeply impress upon us the absolute horror and torment of hell and the absolute wonder and paradise of heaven. I'll deal with hell first, so we can at least end on something that's sort of more positive. You might remember in his great speech to all the philosophers assembled in the Areopagus, Paul in Acts chapter 17 said that God made us all and placed us all in the time and context we're all in and that he did this so that we would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him though he's not far from any one of us. One of my favourite Puritans, a guy named Thomas Boston, I think does great justice to this teaching when he expands on it by saying, Man naturally desires to be happy, being conscious to himself that he is not self-sufficient. He has ever a desire of something outside himself to make him happy. And the soul being, by its natural make and constitution, capable of enjoying God and nothing else being commensurable to its desires, it can never have true and solid rest till it finds rest in the enjoyment of God. Basically, yes, we were designed to find our satisfaction in God. So, what does it look like when we persistently reject our purpose and when God gives us over to our rebelliousness for all eternity? Well, Boston continues with the dreadful, but I think very logical conclusion. He says, now, while the wicked are on earth, they seek their satisfaction in the creature, not the creator, but in the creature. And when one fails, they go to another. Thus, they spend their time in the world, deceiving their own souls with vain hopes. But in hell, all comfort in the creature's failing, they shall be totally and finally separated from God and see that they have thus lost him. So the doors of earth and heaven both are shut against them at once. This will create them unspeakable anguish. While thou shalt live under an eternal gnawing of hunger after happiness, which they certainly know shall never be in the least measure satisfied, all doors being closed on them. Who then can imagine how this separation from God shall cut the damned to the heart? How they will roar and rage under it and how it will sting and gnaw them through the ages of eternity. No wonder Jesus himself uses the imagery of things like 
outer darkness, unquenchable fire, everlasting destruction, to speak of what it will be like for sinners to deservingly suffer body and soul, the wrath of the God that they have despised. The idea that Satan is sort of ruling over hell is, of course, thoroughly stupid and unbiblical. Jesus, obviously, is the one that rules over hell. The lake of unquenchable fire was actually designed for Satan to suffer in, and, of course, all those who have followed him, which is anyone and everyone who hasn't put their faith in Christ. The idea that sinners in hell will at least be with all their friends foolishly assumes that friendship is possible in the absence of God's goodness which of course it's not. By the way, if you're here tonight, I don't know everyone here, and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, please, please do the right thing. The thing God himself has actually designed you for, please turn to him in repentance. Thank him that Jesus died to pay the price for your sin and live with Jesus as your Lord from this day forward. Do it now. Tomorrow might be the last day for all I know. It could be too late. Do it today. Do it in your own head and mind and and, and heart right now as I just continue speaking. Now, what then about heaven? Well, far from being like cherubs sitting on clouds playing harps and therefore, frankly, getting bored, I reckon. Though if it was a guitar, maybe. No. It will be more like enjoying a renewed earth where God dwells forever with his redeemed people. To quote from Hokemer again, are we to spend eternity somewhere off in space wearing white robes, plucking harps, singing songs and flitting from cloud to cloud while doing so? On the contrary, the Bible assures us that God will create a new earth on which we shall live to God's praise in glorified resurrected bodies. On that new earth, therefore, we hope to spend eternity, enjoying its beauties, exploring its resources and using its treasures to the glory of God. Since God will make the new earth his dwelling place, which we saw in Revelation 21, and since where God dwells, there heaven is, we shall then continue to be in heaven while we are on the new earth. That whole coming down, going up thing. Friends, God is a God who we know is at rest. Uh, For every one of the six days that he was forming the, the creation, there was an evening and a morning and the next day, but for the seventh day, where he rested from all his work, there hasn't been an evening and a morning. We're still in the Sabbath day. God is still in his rest. And I didn't make that up. The writer to the Hebrews speaks about us being soon to enter into God's rest and yet at one and the same time God has constantly been active in sustaining the world Jesus said that my father is always working and therefore I'm working the logical conclusion I think is that in the new heavens and the new earth our experience of rest will include satisfying work activity Now, I know when we think of work in the here and now, there's drudgery, there's difficulty, there's whatever, but you can think of a a bunch of things that you do that you really love doing, you know, like making a cake and feeling really good about it or restringing a guitar. And there is actually pleasurable work that's restful. And speaking of rest, given that we are called foreigners and exiles in the world, 1 Peter 2, 
And given that we're told Jesus is preparing a place for us, John chapter 14, I think another fitting image of entering into the new heavens and the new earth would be the feeling of coming home after being away for a long time, coming back to your own house, flopping on your own couch, sleeping on your own. You know that feeling when you've been away for a long time, you kind of get back? There's the relaxing familiarity. God, who you've always known as your heavenly father, is there. Jesus, who you've known as your older brother, are there and they welcome you back and look after you and you enjoy that relaxing feeling of, well, coming home. Other images include a wedding feast, which my wife really likes because she's a foodie. And so I think you get to eat in heaven. That's kind of cool. And uh, a glorious city where nothing defiled or impure will ever enter in but the big ticket item is it will be united with the Lord that we've always known and with whom our souls find absolute delight and satisfaction beyond what we can fathom in the here and now as the apostle Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 2 9 what no eye has seen no ear has heard no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him Two implications that I'm going to rush through for the sake of time. Firstly, once you understand the relationship between the last days and the last day, you know where we currently fit in when it becomes really easy to understand why God allows his children to undergo suffering. See, suffering is actually part and parcel of the fallen world. It is a decaying and dying world and things tend to suffer as they decay and die. And suffering itself is never a good thing. Suffering is never a thing to be celebrated because it is always actually bad and horrible. But God in his loving kindness and his sovereign goodness lets the suffering do its work on the Christian that he is moulding for eternity. See, given it's part of the last days but not part of the resurrection age, when the suffering of this world befalls us, he allows it to, I guess, push the focus and desire of the heart and mind toward the life that is hidden in Christ, to make you more of the, the real you kind of thing. This, in turn, puts us, I think, in the optimal condition to anticipate the last day. Jesus himself knows the suffering his people endure. As a matter of fact, the church is the body of Christ. Our suffering, he feels like he feels in his own body. He knows it. But it fits people for the glory that is to come. And I've got to say, in my experience at least, the Christians who patiently endure hardship bring Jesus so much glory in the way they serve as an encouragement to God's church. Finally, seeing our place in God's eschatological order, enables us to appreciate the way God gives us guidance in making all kinds of decisions. Guidance is a huge topic, one that deserves a whole sermon on its own. And I think later this year, I might be giving a whole sermon on guidance. Uh, but just briefly, should I take job A and job B when they're the same distance, pay the same thing and make no difference? Why, God, don't you give me a sign? Why can't I throw out a fleece like Gideon and make it, you know, wet or not wet or something like that? Why can't you write in the sky, God, take job A instead of job B, right? 
It's because in the grand scheme of things, it has little to no bearing on you living in the last days and in the resurrection age and being in the new heavens and the new earth and the return of Jesus. So it's not actually that big a deal. If the word has a lot to say on it, it's a big deal. If the word doesn't have a lot to say on it, well, it's not a big deal. I know this is hard for us to get used to, but the thing that God is really, really interested in when it comes to decision-making and guiding us is actually holiness. Now, the Apostle Paul writes it in 1 Thessalonians, God's will for your life is that you should be sanctified, literally made holy. If one of these is going to help you be more godly, then take that one over the other one, but that's the guidance that the Word of God is giving you. Now, I recognise that that in itself is big and let alone all the other stuff I've big and I've barely scratched the surface of uh, what we can say about eschatology. I've got no idea whether or not we're going to have a question time but what I will do now is pray and if there is question time we'll do that, if not we can uh, write things on the, the connect form. I can't even see Oliver, where is he? Oh, there he is. We will do, all right, we'll, we'll pray first and then we, we can have some questions. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that you speak to us in your word. You tell us about the time we live in and the, what must soon take place. Uh, we thank you for the wonder it is to know that our lives are currently hidden with Christ in God and when he returns, we'll appear with him in glory. Thank you, therefore, that nothing we do uh, to increase our holiness and obedience is ever wasted. Nothing we do uh, to love and serve you and neighbour as self is ever going to be regretted. Heavenly Father, I pray for anyone here who as yet has not experienced the first resurrection, does not yet know Jesus as Lord and Saviour, that before it's too late, you grant them the gift of repentance and faith, that they will turn and live no longer for self and world, but live for the one who truly is Lord of both self and world, namely Jesus, and that they would stand firm in the faith both now and on the last day. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.